welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we're positively obsessed with dog behavior. Join us every other week as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of behavior. Today is another episode with just Ursa and I, and we're going to do um, hot takes part four, as well as share a part two of our announcements. Um, as a quick reminder, before we get started, um, you can still support the podcast over on Patreon. So sign up over at patreon.com slash canine convos and you'll be able to submit suggestions for our hot takes questions for upcoming episodes and at the higher levels of patreon engagement you can also submit questions to our guests um, which include people like sarah strumming and ken ramirez and hannah brannigan so it's a pretty cool perk uh, <laughs> so uh <laughs> why don't we start out with um with your update before we dive into our hot takes god i feel like our updates have updates <laughs> Yeah, it's just there's, there's we need footnotes. There's been a lot. We do need footnotes. We need the Cliff Notes version of Canine Combos. Um, yeah, so my update is a little bittersweet, actually. Um, this is going to be my last episode on Canine Conversations, <laughs> and I'm really bummed about it. But yeah. um, with the demands of this, I know with the demands of this position um, that I've accepted at Behavior Vets, I'm just not going to be able to continue on um, and you know be a regular presence on Canine Conversations conversations in the way that I need to be. So, um, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm bummed about it, but I'm, you know, on to new things mm -hmm. that I am also excited about. Um, and Kayla and I have promised that we're still going to have a uh, monthly zoom call together so we can catch up on things, yes. which, you know, is yes. <laughs> Makes yeah. me feel yeah. a lot better about <laughs> leaving. Um, but yeah, I'm going to miss it. You guys, it's been so fun and such a cool experience. And, you know, I hope that, um, you know, if anyone wants to reach out to me, you can always, um, you know, can contact me at ursa.acre at gmail.com or find me at behavior vets of Colorado. Um, I'll be doing dog training there, uh, going forward. And yeah, it's just been, it's been awesome. And I, I, every part of this experience has just been great. It's been so fun. And all of the feedback and positive reinforcement we've gotten from our listeners has just, you know, really been amazing. So thanks for everything. And Kayla, I mean, this would not happen without Kayla. So <laughs> she yeah, is but it also really the brains behind this you. operation. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I, yeah. Well, like, <laughs> but yeah, we're going to miss you a you. lot. And, um, <laughs> Yeah, oh. it's it's going to be, it, you yeah. know, I think right now the plan is that Canine Conversations is going to carry on. Um, and uh, I think for now, it'll just be me as our main host. Um, I think we might, we might be looking for another co-host in the future. I haven't quite decided yet. Um, but uh, we'll, uh, we're going to, we're going to keep Sounds the podcast going. Sounds like an going. opportunity. I was going to say that sounds like an opportunity for a bachelorette style competition program. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, Search for the next canine convos host. <laughs> okay. Loki, it's one of my dreams to be like the world's weirdest bachelorette and just be like, I'm a podcast host and obsessed with dogs. Can you identify this tree? If not, you're out. <laughs> Right. <laughs> this has just been like one of my oh recent my dreams um, is to just like really ruin the bachelorette by just being like the weirdest crazy dog biology lady. Um, 
and you know putting I, I support putting this. Instagram influencer men through the ringer. Um, <laughs> Just really, really confusing a lot of himbos, right? <laughs> oh my gosh, it'd be so fun. Um, so if anyone works in, that would be fun. in Hollywood, holler at us. Um, yeah, there you no, go. But, on, but in all seriousness, we're uh, like, I, I, uh, it makes me really sad that you're leaving. I'm really excited for what you're going on to do. Um, you know, this is this has been such an amazing journey together. And I feel like... Um, you know, yeah. it, it genuinely, it, it wouldn't have been possible without you. And, you know, without Marissa as well, it, it, it is feeling a little bit like yeah. Survivor where we keep like, I mean, we're not voting each other off the <laughs> island, but. <laughs> no. Uh, and then there was one. Yeah, I know. Um, and then but, there was one. I know. Well, I hope that I'll have an opportunity to, you know, join you again in podcast land in some capacity again, um, you know, whether it's as a guest or maybe I can guest co-host or, you know, we'll kind of see what opportunities come up, but you, mm-hmm. you know, you haven't seen the last of me for sure. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> There's no so, way we're letting you get off the hook that easy. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And I still count you among, you know, one of my closest friends and, and especially within my dog training circle, um, you know, just one of my greatest peers and somebody that I really respect. So obviously that hasn't changed, but yeah, um, no. And I mean, yeah, you're, so. you're one of my mentors, so it's been cool to be able to have you <laughs> on and like you have so much more experience than I do in so many ways that, um, I, you know, it, it's going, the podcast is losing a lot of brains, uh, today. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but, oh, that's really sweet. <laughs> but that's okay. You know, we'll, well, we'll, we'll carry on. All right. Yeah. Well, I, I know right. you will. I mean, yeah. you're amazing. <laughs> oh, shucks. Um, <laughs> well, moving on from our love fest, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've got, a. Uh, We've got what Patreon questions and some hot takes. And yeah. I mean, maybe today is the day. Maybe our last episode together is when we find one that we disagree on. What do you think? I hope so. I don't know. <laughs> I hope so too. Make things spicy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, should we start with our Patreon question? Um, and then we could just do hot, hot takes yeah. until we hit an hour. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, letting everyone see how the sausage is made. This is about how prepared we are when we get on. <laughs> I've got it. I'm prepared. I'm ready to go. So I think um, I'm going so to read 30- this question to you, Ursa, oh, um, because it talks oh, about it. my experience with Barley and Premac Principal and Squirrels versus Marissa's experience with mm-hmm. Sully and Premac and Squirrels. So I think what is going to make sense is if I ask you for your opinion first, and then I can kind of chime in because you're the one sure. whose dog is not involved in this question. So an episode... Okay, sounds good. Yeah. So one of our patrons asked, um, in episode 34, you talked about using chasing squirrels as a reward for your dogs. Kayla said this made Barley more desperately want to chase squirrels, but for Marissa, she said this made Sully's desire to chase go down. Now the question, my dog is very excited about squirrels. I actually say very excited about squirrels. Very excited. (laughs) Yeah. And it's one of the things I've been trying to teach her not to lose her doggy mind over since she does not listen to me at all if she sees a squirrel. So basically, would using chasing squirrels as a reward for her impulse control or checking in with me help or with any other dog with high prey drive? um, Oh, with 
so yeah, would it help for her or with any other dog with high prey drive? Or do you think a dog that's already extremely excited about squirrels will have a reaction similar to Barley's? Thanks. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, it's a really common method. So what we're talking about is using what's called the premac principle, which is um, essentially reinforcing a behavior by um, giving access to a, another behavior. So um, in this case, we would be the goal would be to reinforce the behavior of either looking at the handler or exercising some sort of impulse control, like sitting or laying down or checking in or whatever, reinforce that by allowing the dog to then go ahead and chase the squirrel. And eventually what they learn is, okay, if I do what you want first, then I get to do what I want second. Um, and in theory, I think it's awesome. I, I, mm -hmm. I think it's a great approach for a lot of dogs, but as with anything, <laughs> it really depends on the dog. Um, it really depends on the skill of the person training it. Um, mm -hmm. This is a, a method that I like to use, but I do find it sometimes difficult to transfer it to owners or lay people who are, are not, you know, dog trainers um, because it takes a lot of troubleshooting. I find that it takes a lot of troubleshooting to, um, figure out like where the dog can be successful. And part of the reason for that is that we can't control what the squirrels are doing or the bunnies or whatever geese. Um, God, we have a ton of geese here in Denver and we can't control what these wild animals are doing. So it's really easy to find yourself in a position where the dog goes from uh, able to be under threshold to over threshold very quickly. I've even had, I've been working in the park with clients where squirrels come towards us. Like the dog is very clearly stalking the squirrel and it's literally moving directly towards us. And I just, I, d I don't understand squirrel brains. Um, you know, you would think by now that they would have evolved to not like run into traffic and dart in different directions or go towards predators or whatever. But I mean, they're doing okay. So I guess it's working out for them. But anyway, point being, it's really hard to control the trigger in those cases. And so <clears throat> the better a job that you do at that, the more likely it is that it's actually going to work. Um, outside of that, I can definitely see where for some dogs, uh, it could be, so, you know, with behavior chains, what happens a lot of the time and behavior chain is just, you know, two or more behaviors that happen back to back. And so sometimes what happens, oh, whoops, was that a, a bowl? That was Niffler chasing a metal ball around. Hang on. Oh my nice. God. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you live in a in a like a restaurant kitchen all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, did I not tell you that? Oh Nibbler my goodness, Niffler. <laughs> oh, nice, excellent. I want to yeah. train my dogs to cook for me. Um, it's, so it's been, with it's behavior chains. Oh, I'm go on. <laughs> I'm just saying nonsense. I cannot believe you let your puppy use the oven. That is just not safe. Um, <laughs> So that's my hot take. With Dogs behavior should chains. be allowed to cook. Oh, okay. Here we go. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> I mean, there is already dog here in all of my food, so whatever. Yeah, nothing matters. 
nothing matters. It's 2021, nothing matters anymore. Um, <laughs> so with a behavior chain, what we'll see sometimes is that a dog will rush through the first part to get to the end part. Mm -hmm. um, and again, sometimes that's a matter of um, technique or um, just, you know, having some cleaner training skills. And sometimes it's just a matter of a really, really enthusiastic dog. And so I, I hate this answer. I know everyone hates this answer, but it's relevant. It depends. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that if you've got all of those pieces in place where you should be seeing success and you're still not, then maybe it's not the right um, approach for your dog. So I will mm -hmm. also, with either dogs that are that I don't feel are right for this approach or, or humans that I don't feel are right for this approach. Sometimes what I'll do is just a version of engage, disengage where, um, yeah. you know, we see squirrels at a distance and we work on, um, looking at them calmly and then looking at them and looking away. Um, and then, uh, the other thing I'll throw in and then I'll let you have some time, Kayla, I know I've been talking forever, um, <laughs> is with what I hear all the time about training, dogs who are excited about prey is my dog won't take food when they see a squirrel, bunny, goose, whatever. And I, I don't think that's a function of the food not working. I think that's a function of the food not being used appropriately. Nine mm -hmm. times out of 10, when I go work with a client who says my dog refuses to even look at food when we're working around squirrels, um, I can get the dog to eat food. And it's just a matter of they were starting too close to the squirrel. Yeah. Um, or they were offering the food in a way that didn't really motivate the dog to want to work for it. So I see people a lot of the time trying to lure the dog away. And what I find is um, it's much better if you use a previously learned behavior, like look or touch or whatever, and you mark it and then you give the dog the food. Like don't try to, you know, tempt them away with it. Just mm -hmm. give it to them. And what I see a lot of the time is the dog goes, oh, food is on the table, so, so to speak. And then they start engaging with me because they're like, oh, okay, I, I can actually get something out of this. So yeah. I, I do think that when people say my dog won't take food around prey, it's usually that the parameters of the exercise, like they're not setting up the exercise or the environment for the dog to be able to sort of like disengage with it and, and work for the food. So. Yeah. Yeah, that um, makes a lot of sense. What do you think? Gotta, Your turn. Yeah, I'm going to yeah, be quiet gotta, and drink some coffee. Get to it. I've got a couple things um, that are kind of on my mind as we're thinking about this. So, you know, broadly, I think, you know, mostly it depends. So for my circumstance, part of it for me is that I don't really want my dogs learning that chasing wildlife is an appropriate behavior that I tolerate really at all um mm -hmm. and that is partially just because i am a control enthusiast and partially because of the work that we do and partially because of where we live um control so enthusiast I, is my new favorite phrase <laughs> yes yeah i heard that recently i believe hannah brannigan said it first um so that's oh kind gosh, of, of one course. thing for me that's amazing um is that, yeah, I I just generally would prefer if my dogs learn that chasing wildlife is not really on the table. Kind of similar to, I am unlikely to reward them for 
sitting uh, sitting quietly at my feet at dinner with letting them jump up on the dinner table. I will deliver an alternate reinforcer mm-hmm. to them in that scenario. Like I just, for me, that's not a scenario where I want to um, build up the the excitement of squirrels by making it one of those things where they're kind of like, oh my gosh, am I going to get to chase them this time? Or, you know, like I, I don't want there to be any question. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, that is a thing that we are learning to ignore, period, always. And I yeah. think that that lesson generally is easier for the dogs that I have worked with. And I strongly suspect that there is something that I am doing mechanically quote unquote wrong with the pre-mac principle, because I see this result so consistently with my clients where I just have consistently really struggled with it with wildlife. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and then the two other things, one is that I think there is some really interesting research out there that I'm quoting probably second or third hand, but that basically um, dopamine peaks when you're anticipating a reward, not when you're actually engaging with that reward. And what mm-hmm. I have really seen with the dogs when I've tried to implement a pre-mac principle around wildlife is that they, that excitement of being able to chase starts to bleed forward, which makes sense. We utilize Mm -hmm. that as a way to build enthusiasm and training. You know, if you want to get a dog who loves tug of war to um, come back to you faster, have a really rocket recall, you start using tug of war as a reward for it. And you start seeing increased enthusiasm and intensity in the behavior. So I think if you're really Mm -hmm. skilled, you can use that increased enthusiasm and anticipation of being able to chase the squirrel as a way to build a snappier response. But what I end up seeing more of is that that kind of increased excitement about the potential, the anticipation of going to chase the squirrel, actually making squirrels more salient because they're scanning the environment for squirrels more because there's a chance that if they find a squirrel and then sit and then stare at me with their pupils huge and their mouth closed and they're barely breathing (laughs) that they're going to get to chase the squirrel and if they never ever get to chase the squirrel then there's no point in scanning the environment for squirrels so that is what i have (laughs) really seen um, the other thing, I had another thing that I wanted to, oh, kind of circling back to what you were talking about as far as getting dogs to take food in the presence of squirrels. I really like using um, Sarah Strepping's arousal testing procedures that she describes in her class Worked Up, which you can get on FancyDogSportsAcademy.com. Um, not paid to say that. Um, and <laughs> no, we're not. We just love what, them. Yeah. And what she does, um, and this is, it's taught kind of in the context of an agility environment and getting your dog ready to compete. But what she starts doing is going up to, um, towards the agility trial environment. So in this case, it would be going towards a squirrel or a place where squirrels may be. And there's kind of a multi-stage procedure as far as testing how engaged your dog is with you versus in the environment. So, you know, can your dog eat right now? Yes, no. Can your dog engage with toys? Yes, no. If you can't get your dog to mm-hmm. eat, you are not able to go closer to the thing. And then as you're able to get your dog mm-hmm. to eat or engage with toys, and she does a lot of marker cue testing, which we're not going to get into too much, but you know, can your dog tell the difference between <laughs> when it's time to eat food versus chase a toy? Um, And only once you're able to work through that and the dog is eating food in a way that is normal for that dog. So they're not being really snatchy or having the food fall out the side of their mouth or taking it really slowly or anything that's unusual for them. Then you might start to layer in, can the dog listen to cues that you're giving them? 
And then from mm-hmm. there, what I start doing is looking for, can the dog start offering behaviors to me? And that's how I really work with mm-hmm. dogs that are really excited or amped up about squirrels or uh, Barley has um, an, an ocean obsession. Um, and we do a lot of this where he's not <laughs> able, he's not allowed to walk closer to the ocean or the squirrel until he's able to engage with me on various of those kind of three levels of engagement with me. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I think your point about this isn't something you want your dogs to learn to do is really important because it's not an appropriate training method for a lot of dogs in, in that regard, because, you know, I think about like the, where most dogs, for example, in Denver encounter schools is in like public parks and things like that, where I don't want my client to be letting their dog off leash to go chase a squirrel. Um, you know, so a lot of the time, well, all the time, if we're doing this, we'll work on a long line, but like, is it really practical for going forward to use it as reinforcement is a big factor. Um, yeah. And is it and helpful? So, you know, I, is it helpful? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. I, I generally I find really it like cleaner and easier to just go through and work with food and arousal testing, you know, engage, disengage, mm-hmm. however you want to call. All, I, I feel like I mix all of these different methods up together, so I probably shouldn't use their, their trademark names. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, and the other thing is I think of it as a really advanced skill. So it's something that like, um, you know, that, that, a technique of uh, that's kind of not really in fashion anymore, but of teaching a dog bark and quiet or speak and quiet to keep them from barking. Like I always thought that was a really advanced skill and not one that I would just like hand over to an owner because it, you really have to get it right or it backfires on you. And I think this is another one of those where like, um, you know, yeah, if I'm going to work on it with an owner, I want to be there. I want to, to get at least get them started to where the dog is starting to respond the way we want them to before I hand it off for them to practice. Um, And so it is much easier to teach someone who is not a dog trainer to do, you know, like you said, sort of the arousal testing and engage, disengage. I feel like those are much simpler skills to learn and be successful with for someone who's not a trainer. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think anytime that you're doing, you're, yeah, you're, you're doing pre-back. You need to be willing to have that reward on the table and be willing to play around with the idea that, you know, your dog may or may not know that like, oh, today we're in Central Park. So chasing squirrels is not on the table, but, you know, at uh, Cherry Creek Dog Park, it is on the table. You know, I just, I find that lack of clarity challenging for dogs so i think we've honestly we could do an entire episode on this but i think that hopefully that helps clear things one thing i wanted to add yeah one thing i want to add really quick is that if if the dog wants to chase more than anything um what i will often do is keep a furry tug um Mm -hmm. i really like the ones from genuine dog gear i think they're called wild thing and it's literally again not being paid to say that i just really love this product um it's like a an actual piece of buffalo hide and it's cut into like a long strip and it looks like a squirrel like from a distance it looks like a squirrel and so i'll what i'll usually do is keep that like tucked into my back pocket or the waistband of my pants or whatever and when 
the dog does the behavior that I'm looking for, the approximation that I'm looking for, will pull out the tug and I'll drag it around me in a circle. So they still get that feeling of like chasing and catching and tugging. Um, mm-hmm. And that has actually been really helpful, especially in places where like if I'm looking to let the dog chase, we, we can't really do it safely. Like I'm not going to let them chase a squirrel across the street. Um, and so sometimes for some dogs that will be motivating enough and, and satisfy that desire to like chase and grab something, um, which obviously I don't want them to catch a squirrel, um, but uh, they can catch the tug. So um, those are really great. Yeah. And they're great yeah. for flirt poles too. I love those toys at the end of a flirt yeah. pole. Yeah, we'll make sure to link to them in the show notes so people can find them um, because that sounds like a great toy and a good thing to have um, potentially literally up your sleeve. Right. It's definitely been there before. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. Let's um, switch on over to our hot takes. Um, I actually don't have my phone in front of me. Ursa, can you be the time master today? Yeah, absolutely. And do we want to roll in um, some of these hot takes? Oh, wait, do you already have them in Trello? Sorry. I don't have them in Trello, but I uh, I think we should do the ones from our patrons first. And then we've, if we've got time at the end, we'll roll into the ones that we had previously from Trello. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Let's do those first, because I think we have five there and that should be that should take a lot of our time. I mean, not uh, like yeah. we like to talk or anything. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, So I will read the first one to you, if that sounds good. Um, How do you feel about harm's way working dogs? So examples are property, personal protection, police, or military. Um, For the sake of argument, we are going to assume that they were trained with positive reinforcement and find joy in their work. Okay. (laughs) So dogs who are put in harm's way on behalf of humans, I think is what they're getting at here. Mm -hmm. I have complicated feelings about it. Um, (laughs) In the U S and the history of policing, our military and police dogs have been deployed in some pretty horrific racist ways that I'm really uncomfortable with. I know there has been um, some infographics and papers that I've seen kind of showing that that continues to this day that um, like much police force, uh, military or uh, police dogs are deployed um, unequally across society. And that is concerning to me. Um, I think that there, I don't know, but it seems like there's quite a bit of variability in the standards of training. It seems like some of these dogs are exquisitely trained. They're bred to love this work. Um, And I honestly don't have a huge issue with it. I know it's tragic when a a dog that has been deployed um, to a war zone is harmed or killed. Um, And I think that there are really important questions to ask about whether or not that dog really can consent to that sort of work. Um, but I, I actually don't have a huge problem with that. I then when we start getting into property and livestock guardian dogs, um, I start feeling much more comfortable. I couldn't quite articulate to you why, um, but I know I think a lot about um, the uh, like livestock guardian dogs, which are essentially property dogs. And in my 
understanding of those, they are much more deterrent based and much more instinct based. And I think most of those dogs, given the choice, would probably continue doing that um, for the rest of their lives, no matter what. Um, and I think that I would like to draw those apart a little bit from like a patrol apprehension sort of dog. Um because I think they're a little bit different as far as the degree of danger. And there's something to me that's a little different from having, you know, a German shepherd on, um, on property patrolling or a Marema sheepdog um, embedded in your flock versus taking a dog out and actively using that to pursue and potentially take down what may or may not be bad guys or could just be, you know, I, I know we've all probably seen some of the videos of like all other forms of police force, um, working dogs being deployed um, unfairly, unjustly, dangerously, or even against, you know, innocent bystanders. And a lot of times these dogs aren't trained to, not a lot of times, I shouldn't say that, but we've seen videos of these dogs having not really been trained to release um, a bite. And, uh, you know, that what if you're uh, yeah, dog bites are so bad. Um, I don't know. I, it's yeah. complicated. So I think that's, that's where I'm at with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's complicated. So it depends. Um, yeah. I mean, I agree. I think that there are, you know, I think that the issue of whether or not dogs are used ethically in terms of what are they doing to human beings is definitely separate from the issue of, is it ethical to use dogs for jobs where they're put in harm's way? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I would say that, you know, I, I completely agree with you. I think that the way that dogs are used for, um, you know, law enforcement work, it could, there's a lot that could be improved and that's a whole sort of quagmire of, um, of issues. But if we're talking about uh, just the ethics of using dogs for mm -hmm. jobs that put them in harm's way, um, you know, I think that uh, generally speaking, I'm okay with it. I think that pet owners make a lot of choices that put their dogs in harm's way every day. Um, and, and sometimes it's not really even for to ultimately benefit anything. So, you know, I have, um, clients and mm -hmm. see people all the time that have their dogs off leash near busy streets. Um, that is putting your dog in harm's way. Um, and I know personally know people whose dogs have been hit and killed because of that decision. Um, <clears throat> so I think that, um, you know, it's not just working dogs that are being put in harm's way on a daily basis. Uh, I am generally okay with using animals to, to benefit humans. I'm generally okay with it. Um, I have a lot of mixed feelings about it and I think it's uh, ethically, there's a lot of discussion to be had, but I think overall, if the animals needs are being met, if the job, if they're being taught to do the job in a humane way, and I think any animal can be taught to do pretty much any job without having to, you know, use pain to train them. Um, and we have a lot of examples of that. Ken Ramirez and Steve White are just two mm -hmm. that come to mind, um, you know, training, uh, working with police dog forces across the country to start to shift towards positive reinforcement. Kathy Sadeo training dolphins for military use um, using positive reinforcement. I mean, I, I, you know, if we can train a dolphin um, to do a job 
at a distance in the ocean with positive reinforcement, I think that that makes it a pretty strong case that we can do it pretty much anywhere. But um, I, I am okay with using animals to benefit humans as long as we are constantly looking at, did we do this in the best way that we could? Are there better ways to do it? Um, <clears throat> are we minimizing the risk wherever we can? And are we ensuring the animal's quality of life um, while the job is being performed? Mm -hmm. um, and those are hard questions to answer. I'm not saying it's just <laughs> as simple as like yeah. a checklist. <laughs> but for me, it boils down to those issues. And I think in a society where, you know, obviously there are individuals that are going to differ on this, but in a society where we use animals for food and, um, you know, products and things like that, uh, I, I don't see, you know, teaching a dog to go sniff out landmines <clears throat> as worse than, you know, factory farming a chicken, for yeah. example. Um, yeah. So I do think it taps into this whole bigger conversation around the ethics of using animals for people in any regard. Um, you know, are we okay with an animal potentially dying for, for the benefit of humans? And if, if we say yes to that, then are we able to make sure that the animal's life is as humane as possible and as, and we're as thoughtful as possible about their emotional welfare in the meantime? Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. All right. On to that, the next one. one. Was, yeah. It's a great question. Yeah. We could, do an entire episode on that <laughs> easily yeah easily and from so many different angles i mean you could do an entire 10-part series on it um mm -hmm. <laughs> so all right absolutely and this, this next absolutely. one is kind of related um so are there acceptable alternatives to pursuit takedown bite work that would be less mentally stressful for the dog and they also specify putting police brutality excessive force aside so as an example, training the dog to tackle someone to the ground rather than a bite and latch sort of approach. So I don't know. Um, Ursa, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, I mean, this isn't, I'll be completely honest, this is way outside of my wheelhouse. So um, I don't really have any experience in teaching dogs um, bite work or protection work. Um, so, you know, I can... I can speak to how I feel about, you know, teaching dog dogs to do tasks that are dangerous, kind of like we just talked about. Um, yeah. But I, I, you know, the intricacies of, of that kind of work are, are not something I'm really familiar with. The mm -hmm. first thing that I would say that jumps out to me about this question is, um, are, are these kind of um, tasks mentally stressful for the dog? So the listener asked, you know, are there alternatives that would be less mentally stressful? I think we first have to say, like, is it mentally stressful for the dog? Because, mm -hmm. you know, as we know, there are lots of dogs that are bred to be incredibly enthusiastic about this kind of work. Um, you know, Malinois looking at you guys <laughs> and, <Yep>. um, <laughs> And seem to really enjoy doing it and seem to really be enthusiastic. And I would, I would say, I would even go so far as to say that there are plenty of other things that we train dogs to do that are mentally stressful. I mean, I think that I've seen dogs doing agility where I would say like, Ooh, that dog seems really wound up and stressed out. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, as with everything, I think we have to look at the individual dog and say like, is this dog doing the work 
as voluntarily as we can determine and, Mm -hmm. or do there seem to be signs that the dog is stressed out or apprehensive or anxious about it? Or are we putting the dog unnecessarily in harm's way and kind of look at that on a, on an individual basis? Um, I don't know enough about this kind of work to say like, Oh yeah. Teaching the dog to like tackle somebody and stand on top of them would be better. I, I don't even know if that's practical. Um, yeah, I think that was so kind of my really biggest question. You know, we have these animals that a, yeah. do really seem to love this work um, in right. a lot of cases. I mean, almost all of the videos I watch of Malinois doing bite work, like, oh my God, they look so oh, happy. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. You oh know, and God, even, you know, <laughs> Dobies and Rottweilers and other, other breeds that I've seen doing this sort of work, they do seem to really enjoy it. I actually think Barley would really enjoy it. Um, And I also, you know, on a pragmatic level and even kind of like a fair fight sort of level, I would feel kind of weird about taking away your dog's ability to bite as an, like if, if we're going to say for the sake of argument with this question that we're doing some sort of suspect apprehension, um, to not have the dog bite as part of that seems impractical and kind of unfair to the dog. Like they have a mouthful of knives and that's their best weapon. Um, I would feel pretty weird about sending a dog into harm's way for any of these dangerous situations and not having the dog use the one weapon and Scott, um, you know, again, I have issues about excessive or concerns about excessive force and harm's way and these other things. But, you know, assuming we are sending the dog after someone, um, it just seems really right. impractical to not have them bite. That kind of seems like the whole point of the dog. Yeah, yeah. And for many <laughs> and, of them, it could be totally wrong. Actually, like you, yeah. I have very little experience in this. Um, you know, I, I occasionally yeah, enjoy yeah, watching yeah. Mondio videos on YouTube, and that's about as far as I've gotten into the sport. Yeah, me too. And I mean, it's it's amazing to see what dogs can do. I will say, like, not as a dog trainer. So putting aside, you know, what I do or don't know about this particular sport um, or t- t- tactics for takedowns and things like that, I actually, for many of the reasons you mentioned, I don't agree with the use of... Uh, dogs for apprehension because I, I think that you know like you said there's a, a very fraught history in terms of dogs being used unequally against uh, people of color I think that um, it's just I, I don't feel it's an appropriate use of, of dogs um, but you know having said that again like if we remove that from the conversation if we're just strictly talking about like okay if we are going to use them what's the most appropriate use I think at the end of the day, it comes down to what is the dog comfortable with and willing to do and how are they being trained to do it with anything, Mm -hmm. you know, again, like with agility or with obedience, I've seen people train competition obedience in a way that made my skin crawl Mm -hmm. um, where they were doing such inappropriate things to the dog to get them to heal or um, retrieve or whatever that I would, it, it was unacceptable to me what people were doing to their dogs to train just competition obedience. And so if I'm looking at, okay, we're training a dog to work in a ring for um, competition, but we're using these really nasty aversive methods or we're training a dog for apprehension, you know, using reinforcement 
uh, or pre-Mac principle, I mean, obviously that second one to me is going to be a better scenario for the dog. Mm -hmm. um, so we have to always look at what they're telling us with their behavior. Yeah. That was another really good question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you want to move anything else you want to add or you want to move on to number three? I'm ready for number three. Okay. Um, and so far we still don't have something that we really disagree <laughs> on. So, <laughs> uh, so number three, uh, hot takes from our Patreon or our patron on Patreon <laughs> thoughts on allowing rough play with humans for example, teeth on skin. I know a lot of breeders who are extremely strict on this, and I'm not sure what they mean about strict. I assume that means they do not allow teeth on skin. I uh, personally, I don't want my dog to freak out if I need to have my hands or fingers in their mouth. So, Kayla, teeth, dog teeth on skin or rough play with humans? Uh, it depends. <laughs> um... <laughs> Dang it. You took my answer. <laughs> I know. Um, okay. So I've got, I've actually, I have like, you know, 17 bullet points in my head and we'll see how many of them I'm able to remember as I start talking. Um, okay. One is, you know, it's going to depend a lot on the size of and personality of the dog as far as how comfortable I am with it. Um, you know, the reality is um, mm -hmm. I have worked with a lot of, you know, big mastiff type dogs that seemed to really thrive on this sort of rough housing, but were also quite scary to play with. Um, and really easily, these mm -hmm. were a lot of kind of teenage mastiffy dogs. Um, it very quickly tipped over for them into a sort of play that was frightening for me. Um, so if I were raising a borble, or, um, you know, a Neapolitan Mastiff or one of those dogs, I actually think I would be much stricter about it than I have been with Niffler. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that matters a lot. And I think if someone were raising Niffler in a home full of children, they might be stricter about it than I am with him. I like roughhousing with my dogs. Mm -hmm. I like playing with my dogs. I like us all being comfortable with each other. I like my dogs teach learning how to play with me in a way that we both enjoy that does not hurt me. Um, so I am fine with it. And mm -hmm. if, and when Niffler does like God, he, <laughs> we were roughhousing the other day um, at the end of a place at the end of a training session, which is kind of how we end most of our training sessions. And I was sitting down um, like crisscross applesauce and he bit me in the belly fat. <laughs> <laughs> and it really oh, hurt. Yikes. It was really embarrassing. <laughs> I was so just oh so like flustered by it <laughs> that like you know that was inappropriate <laughs> and it was too hard. Um, and you know so we ended the play session there and there was a little bit of negative punishment involved in that scenario. And you know it was kind of my fault. I got him too <laughs> revved right. up. Um, so you know it really is going to depend <laughs> on the you know, on your dog and your situation. You know, if you've got a really big mouthy dog that's likely to love this sort of play, I think it's a, 
I think it's important to think about how we can give them that sort of outlet in a way that feels safe for everyone. And, and, you know, even if it's not necessarily like literally actually dangerous where you're like a 120 pound handler with a 200 pound mastiff, like it also just has to feel fun for both ends of the leash in order for it to actually be play. And I think encouraging play that feels safe and fun for everyone is a good goal always. The other thing I was thinking as you were reading this question, Ursa, is that I actually think it's probably quite possible to have a dog who knows that in play they do not put hands on or mouths on hands um and have that dog also learn um to tolerate dental care or dental checkups you know hands around their mouth i think that context is quite different enough um partially and i actually would say i pretty much know that that context is different enough that most dogs are going to be able to learn that because i've seen so many dogs who enjoy rough play and haven't learned not to put their hands or their mouths on hands and also mm-hmm. really don't tolerate dental checkups. So it clearly goes that direction as far as like one directional learning. And I think it's entirely possible mm-hmm. to teach a dog not to bite hands and also to be really good about um, having your hands in their mouth. Um, especially if you're not teaching, if you're mm-hmm. teaching your dog to not bite you using really harsh punishment based techniques, then they might really start being afraid to have hands near their mouth, especially if you're kind of provoking them into biting you and then punishing them, which I don't think any of our listeners would be um, trying to do, but I know is something that is recommended a lot. And I can see that kind of bleeding over into a dog who's really hesitant about handling um, and having hands near their mouth, because in the past that was a trap. <laughs> um, so right. those are, those are, <laughs> those are my trap. thoughts. <laughs> Yeah, I completely agree. And that's one of the reasons why I really vehemently (laughs) oppose using, you know, you'll hear things like, oh, if your puppy bites you, like pinch their tongue or whatever. And that just teaches dogs that hands near their face are dangerous. And that's not what we want them to learn. So Mm -hmm. um, I actually really feel I have a couple of thoughts. First of all, um, I think that, you know, this listener mentioned, I know a lot of readers who are extremely strict about this, just like with anything, um, you know, it doesn't, a breeder having an opinion may or may not be one that's um, informed about behavior. Um, Just like, you know, your regular veterinarian or your friend who's had dogs all their life or whatever. Um, You know, everyone who's ever looked at a dog has an opinion about it, but that doesn't mean that it comes from a place of being informed. So, um, you know, obviously we have to kind of consider that. Uh, I, I would say that I prefer um, for puppies to learn bite inhibition by playing with hands. Um, and I think I want to say Ian Dunbar was probably the first to sort of popularize um, this approach of like soft bites. And um, I, I really like it. I, I like to at least let puppies learn um, okay, this bite was too hard. This bite is softer. And it, it seems to help teach bite inhibition um, later down the line. Uh, that doesn't mean that you have to continue to tolerate your dog play, putting their teeth on your skin. It can be used as a tool to teach the dog that you actually don't put teeth on skin when you're playing. Um, or you can say, you know, you can say like, okay, if we're playing, you get to put teeth on skin, but you can't use more pressure than this. Um, and it, it is a little nuanced and can be a little tough for owners to sort of be consistent with. Um, but I think, you know, 
assuming that any dog is capable of biting at some point in their lives, if they're pushed far enough, I do think it's good for them to have an idea that, you know, you have to handle human skin gently. Um, as far as rough play, I think it really depends. You said it perfectly. It depends on the dog and it depends on the person and it depends on their relationship. So, you know, it, it can be, it can be done, but it, takes a lot of time for a dog to understand like, Oh, you play rough with this person, but not this person, or you can play rough with the grownups, but not the children. And sometimes, you know, having those, um, having those sort of parameters can make it a little confusing for the dog, which can cause frustration, uh, for the family, but, um, it can be done. And as long as you're consistent, the dog will learn. Um, Mm -hmm. but I, I really think it just depends, you know, I don't mind playing rough with dogs. I think, that it's important to, like you said, that both parties are enjoying it. And so there have definitely been dogs that wanted to play rough with me where I was like, whoa, this is a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then there have been times where like, I thought the dog wanted to play rough and came in maybe a little hot and the dog was like, whoa, you're a lot. <laughs> so mm-hmm. just like with any relationship, it's a give and take. It's learning, you know, each other's boundaries and just being clear and, and, um, compassionate with those boundaries, teaching them in a way that's, you know, humane and then respecting the other party's boundaries as well. So I have no problem with rough play in and of itself, but we do have to think about, you know, not in a vacuum, like what does it look like with a particular dog and a particular person and are both of them having fun, um, or two dogs Mm -hmm. even. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually, Niffler is currently crated because he kept trying to sit on Barley's head um, while I was trying to record the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) One of the dogs was really enjoying that game and Uh, one wasn't. Guess which one was which. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Uh, so he's, he's done in the kitchen then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He's done making my lunch. Um, He's now he's in timeout. It's, it's, it's so hard to be a puppy. It is. Um, all right. You want to read question number four? I think it's, I sure do. I think it's your turn to read. Yeah. So uh, it's a little broad. I feel like this is a question actually where if we phrased it differently, we might be able to get us to disagree maybe. Um, but it's phrased broadly enough that I think we're just going to be able to nuance our way into agreement again. Um <laughs> Well, because I was actually legitimately just thinking of answering this in the opposite of however you answer, just to, just because. But um, anyway, <laughs> well, what, uh, I'm curious what you think with a how you think we should change or we could change the phrasing to get us to disagree. I'll read the Do you want to read question. the question um, as written? Okay, yeah, I'll read it as written, and then um, we'll see if I can think of how to rephrase it in a way that might get us to uh, at least have some contrast. How about that? Um, so the question is, how do you feel about okay. board and train versus owner trained? Really broad. Um, okay. I wonder if we could phrase it in a way of like, which is faster or which is easier or which is better. And um, if we forced Ursa and I to answer that with something other than it depends and actually pick a side, I bet we could figure out a, a one of those where we, <laughs> we may disagree. Um Although, of course, the answer is going to be it depends. Because it depends on the problem, it depends on the dog, it depends on the client, it depends on the trainer. Like, are we talking, like, busiest, most overwhelmed client with a tricky problem and a skillful trainer? Or are we talking, like, 
Kayla, when she first put up a Facebook or, a, you know, a Craigslist ad 10 years ago and a really skilled client, because, um, you know, those are going to have different results. Yeah, well, and so I think the other thing that we need to sort of, I guess, discuss or lay the groundwork for is, um, you know, when I hear board and train, I, I still think, and this is anecdotal, but I'm, I still think the vast majority of board and train options are punishment-based. Yeah. Um, I know here in the Denver area, we have a few trainers that offer, um, that are positive reinforcement-based tr trainers and offer board and train, but the vast majority are, you send your dog away, they slap shock collar on them, it comes back in two weeks or whatever, and the behaviors that you don't like have been suppressed. And, you know, we can't say that that doesn't work, in terms of getting the desired results. Um, the question is, <laughs> is that the way you want something to work or it just because mm -hmm. something works, is that the right thing to do? And so obviously I think, no, that's not the right thing to do, whether or not you get the results. Um, I, I don't feel that that's the right way to get them. And I don't feel that it's the way to get them that honors, you know, the dog's emotional welfare and the relationship between the person and the dog. So, I think for the sake of argument, I'm going to assume that we're talking about a, a, a board and train that uses, you know, the humane hierarchy that is not going to put a shot collar on a dog and just suppress behavior versus an owner who's working with a, a similar trainer to do the training on their like mm -hmm. sort of in home or whatever. Um, and I would say, I think that they both have their place. Um, I agree with what you said, Kayla. Some people just either can't or do not want to do the bulk of the training. And I think that's fine. Like, yeah. I don't want to teach my kid. I, I, mm -hmm. I don't want to be a, a homeschool mom. I want someone else to teach my kid. And like, mm -hmm. I'll help him with his homework. And we'll practice, you know, fun reading things together. And I'll read to him and let him read to me. But I don't want to, I don't want to take on the full-time job of teaching him the things that he would learn in school. Mm -hmm. um, and I understand if someone feels the same way about their dog. But I think that when you send, it's all about expectations. When you send a dog to a board and train expecting them to come home um, and, and be like, you know, the completely perfect dog of your dreams, I think that's probably unreasonable because there's still generalization the dog learning mm -hmm. that the behavior can happen in different contexts. There's still the dog learning how to respond to your cues, which are going to be different than the ones of the person who trained them. Um, there's still going to be some legwork to be done to, um, to really, you know, complete and round out the training so that it carries over when the dog comes back home. Um, yeah. and that is less work and there's less room for error than if, a, a lay person does all of the training themselves, but I also think it takes away a little bit of the relationship. You know, I, would my relationship with my son be different if I homeschooled him? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And in some ways better and in some ways worse, like not all good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I could foresee a lot of frustration on both of our parts, but it would certainly be, th there would be a different depth of the relationship there. And, you know, again, it all comes down to, what your what a person's um, tolerance is for for being able to do that, what resources they have, you know, like what kind of time, what kind of money, um, and I also think that it's that board and train can be a really good option for people who just aren't good at training. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's no shame in that. Like 
there's Mm -hmm. plenty of things that I'm not good at. Um, And so I think to say like my technical training skills are not great. And so that is going to hinder my dog's learning. So I'm going to let somebody else do the foundational work, get it solid. And then all I have to do is kind of the easy stuff to maintain it. There's no shame in that whatsoever. Um, I personally, this is the last thing I'll say, and then I'll let you talk. My preference is to work with the owner. I really, really enjoy working with people and I really like helping them learn how to help their dog learn. Um, I mean, I love working with dogs as well, obviously, but I would say I have a slight preference for working with the people with their dogs. Um, and I think that, um, you know, sometimes working in the context where the behaviors are happening can, can have a slight advantage. Um, but yeah, it, it, it depends. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think broadly, yeah, I think broadly within the positive reinforcement community, board and train is underutilized. I Mm -hmm. think that there are a lot of things there's like this perception. And I think a lot of it is kind of defensiveness about the fact that so many board and trains do not, um, like don't align with the methods that we prefer. Um, it makes a lot of us positive reinforcement trainers, uh, react a little viscerally to them and start looking for other reasons that we don't like them. Um, so I know mm-hmm. I've heard mm-hmm. a lot of other positive reinforcement trainers say like, well, they don't work, you know, born and trained doesn't work. Um, <sighs> and that's just not true. Um, and I think no, that there no. are there are actually a lot of times where I really wish that I could offer board and train because I really feel like if I could if I could just take your dog away from you for a couple weeks and like work <laughs> on some of these things. And I think part of my my like yearning for board and train emotionally comes from the fact that I do so much of my work remotely, where. Um, mm-hmm. I think I don't, I, I think because what I struggle with so much is the mechanics of being able to teach people how to do mechanics over the phone or over Zoom, um, that it makes me yearn for board and train. Because I'm just like, God, right. I just wish I could like take this dog and do this for you. Um, just, and I think the in person. Give it to me, give it to me. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and it's not frustration with my clients at all. My clients are lovely. It's just that there are so many times where I'm like trying yeah. to explain the nuance of like exactly when to mark and reward a dog for something kind of tricky. Um, and I think, you know, the in-person work that most trainers do allows them to do that better um, in a way that probably makes them yearn for board and train less. Then, you know, on the flip side, you know, I was just talking to a client yesterday who is in the process of deciding whether to rehome or euthanize her dog for behavioral concerns. And we were talking about, you know, you know, are, have we really um, exhausted our options? You know, are there other things that we need to be looking at here? And, you know, we, the idea of a board and train did come up and we were talking about it. And the reality is it's um, inner household dog, dog aggression that has been so far really unpredictable, very, um, fast and sudden and is happening once every couple months and the fights have been really severe, but they're happening really infrequently. And, you know, looking at a behavior problem like that, like, I don't know. I think there's this like hope that, you know, you could send our, this dog off to doggy boot camp and return them home. And I don't know how in a board and train situation you would elicit um, or stage situations where you could start teaching the dog not to react that way. Um, 
particularly mm-hmm. if you're sending that dog to a board and train without the particular dog in the household that that dog has issues with. It's so context specific and it's happening so infrequently. I would be really concerned about sending that dog off to mm-hmm. board and train and then using that as a way to try to fix that problem. I think, you know, we certainly could use a board and train um, for a client similar to that to build up other skills. Um you know, if the dog really needs to learn how to go to mat and work on some engage, disengage sort of games, I think there are ways to help in board and train um, for those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think the big thing with board and train is it needs to be implemented carefully based on the problem at hand. And then there needs to be a handoff um, program to help the owner kind of learn how to drive their new car. Um, mm-hmm. And uh I think sometimes that's missing. I think, again, I think my my big hot take is that I really, I wish it was offered more. And one of the things that I suspect, but I mm-hmm. can't know for sure, is that I wonder if a lot of humane hierarchy, force-free, positive reinforcement-based dog trainers don't offer as much born and train um, is because we as a community may be more reluctant to kind of have a kennel full of dogs and pull them out, train them for an hour, put them back in. Um, and the amount, mm-hmm. whenever I think about offering board and train, the amount of time and energy and staff that I would need to be meeting those dogs' needs in a way that I felt comfortable <laughs> with does not sound financially sustainable. Let me tell you all about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as someone who's tried to do that, um, it's, it sounded like you oh, were able gosh. to do it until COVID. Um, so... Yeah. Well, and so what's funny is when Kimberly and I first got our building, we swore up and down we would never do board and train. And and not mm-hmm. because I don't believe in it as a way to get, you know, dogs trained, but just because of exactly what you said, the time and effort and manpower, woman power <laughs> needed <laughs> to care for the dogs while you have them is just really I think probably the ideal setup is, is someone who does it out of their home, you know, where they either the dog lives in the home with them or they have a setup in their yard or something like a kennel in their, at their home, because doing it in a a separate facility is just, it's so much overhead and work. And I, I, I think one of the reasons that positive reinforcement trainers might be reluctant to offer it is because we know training takes time And I think when people look at board and train as an option, they think I'm going to send my dog away and they're going to come back and all the things that I want are going to happen. And we, I think as positive reinforcement based trainers know that that's not a reasonable expectation. Um, If you're going to train your dog in a humane way, that might not happen. And we, I I would say the, the biggest thing for me with offering board and train was learning how to set really, really good, clear expectations where, yes, you're dropping your dog off and you're going to pick them up in two weeks. Here are the things we're going to work on. Here's our goal. But Mm -hmm. knowing that like every dog is different. And if we don't hit these little milestones along the way, we might not end up with that end behavior at the end of two weeks or the dog might come home. And if you don't aren't consistent with, you know, uh, doing sort of the maintenance work, the behavior might fall apart. And so I think that it's, that's a really hard conversation and a really scary thing to have people put these expectations on you and then have to meet them Mm -hmm. and knowing that you're not just going to pull out a shock collar and, and, or use, you know, punishment to suppress the behaviors. 
um, it's a lot of responsibility and it's, it's stressful. And I, I feel like that could be what, um, scares a lot of positive reinforcement based trainers away from doing board and train is just meeting those crazy sky high expectations or learning, learning how to talk to people so that they don't have those crazy sky high expectations. Um, cause I can think of, you know, I can think of a lot of times where, uh, we had people drop off dogs for board and train and by the end of, you know, one, two, three weeks, the dog was I mean, amazing, amazing. It made tons of progress, but I can think of times where one in particular, we had a German shepherd that was aggressive towards people and we were able to handle him because his aggression was extremely predictable. It was, it was provoked in a certain way. It was with, you know, it had to do a lot with his like boundary, physical boundaries and handling and things like that. Um, but he was extremely reactive to people and dogs and we made very little progress with him and it could have been, a number of things. It could have been being mm-hmm. in the kennel was pushing him over th- far, too far over threshold. It could have been, you know, he, we were using the wrong motivators for him. It, I, I think there was maybe something physiological going on. Just it was so extreme. And, you know, by the end of his stay, he hadn't made a ton of progress. He had made a little. And as trainers, we were like, okay, good. We can, you know, used to be somebody had to be 200 yards away. Now they can be 100 yards away before he reacts. But that's not good enough for an owner you know, who has to walk their dog out on the street with people passing at 20 feet or whatever. So it's really stressful to have those sort of expectations. And I think that could definitely scare a lot of people away. And if that's the case, if board and train is something you want to offer, maybe you start out by just offering basic manners, you know, where Mm -hmm. you say like, drop off your dog and I'll teach it to lay on a mat and sit and come uncalled or whatever. Um, Those are generally fairly easy expectations to meet, but be mod board and train is a whole other beast for sure. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I know one of the other things that I've thought about a little bit, like I know some people who send their dogs off to sheep camp, um, you know, in the border collie world to have their dogs learn how to, <laughs> how to herd. Um, and I've caught myself a couple of times, yeah. um, wishing that I could send Barley off to agility camp to learn a couple different agility, um, <laughs> things primarily because I don't have the equipment around. Um, so it's really hard for me to practice on a daily basis. Um, but, um, you know, I know in the horse world, it's common and I would imagine this would be quite common in the sport world. Um, were I to actually send my dog off to, um, a sport camp, uh, I would then run into this challenge of, okay, now I need to learn how to drive this car that I've got. I know, um, I had a friend who sold a horse, um, Mm -hmm. that she got, because after you know she only owned it for a year or two because the horse was basically trying to trained to such a high level that her her seat wasn't good enough and the horse was constantly right. thinking the horse was constantly thinking that she was giving cues that she didn't know how to give and then and i could just see the same thing happening in a lot of other you know the sport um the sport world um you know makes it really salient um where you know if barley was trained to do a backside off an agility jump using like, you know, whatever body position. And then like, I'm just kind of like bumbling around the agility field, waving my arms around. He's going to (laughs) be so confused if he's trained to this really really high level. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, that, that happens sometimes with board and train as well. That exact thing happened with me with my sister's horse. So I grew up riding, but I have only really ever done 
I did like more formal writing when I was a kid, but as an adult, I've only ever done like trail writing and pleasure writing. And uh, my sister had this thoroughbred cross who was trained to do like dressage and cross country and hunter jumper and whatever. And I was riding him when I was home visiting. And I know I was at, like, I gave him some weird cue that he didn't understand, or I was giving the wrong cue, or there wasn't one when there should have been. And I got, he bucked me off. <laughs> he was like, yeah, yeah, he's just like, screw you, <laughs> screw lady. you. You don't make any sense. I'm out of here. And my younger sister who knew this horse really well was like, yeah, I think your like pressure was wrong or something like that. I was like, I'm sorry. I don't know how to speak his language. So yeah, I mean, I can, I can definitely see that, which is, you know, another reason why, um, you know, that transfer handoff session is really, really important and making sure that, you know, you're, simplifying things for the client so that they can actually maintain the training once the dog comes home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm. We've got one That's last so one. And um, um, should we do it? We should do it. We can make an extra yeah, long I, last episode. I'm together, so right? excited about this question. <laughs> um, so I really want to do it. Okay. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. Um, uh, oh, I'm reading it. It's right. your turn to read. Yeah. Uh, yes. Okay. So if all breeders were responsible, so we're setting, laying some groundwork here. If all breeders were responsible and there was a very low need for shelters, how do you see the future of dog ownership? For example, if there are limited shelter dogs, how is everyone going to afford a $1,000 plus health tested companion dog? Is that something we should be concerned about? I'm referencing news that a country, uh, Netherlands question mark, has has to import street slash stray dogs in order to meet demands because breeders are so regulated. Oh my God. This is my favorite thing to think about. I talk about this all the time. I was on a first date the other day and wouldn't stop talking about this and was like, well, he's got to learn that this is how I am eventually anyway. Um, and didn't censor myself. I have not been asked for a second date. Um, <laughs> no, it's fine. Uh, That's a bummer. Um, it's also in the bed a couple days. So, you know, anyway, <laughs> this is not yeah. um, my therapy session. Well, quite yet. his loss. <laughs> yeah. Um, quite yet. <laughs> but, um, okay. So I actually think we are on our way to seeing this in our lifetimes. Um, because as community-based sheltering becomes more and more successful and as spay neuter campaigns become more and more successful, we are having fewer and fewer dogs and basically where dogs come from right now in the U S and I can't speak to other countries. Um, but what I know about the U S is that where our dogs come from right now are a decreasing number of oops litters. They come from, and then they come from responsible and irresponsible breeders, you know, and that's kind of the three categories that they can come from. The oops litters are decreasing quite precipitously because of really successful spay neuter campaigns. And then as, as I said, as community-based sheltering becomes more and more prevalent where, um, you know, we're able to offer these free foster programs. If you're um, fleeing domestic violence or experiencing houselessness, we're able to offer spay neuter campaigns and low cost vaccine clinics. And we're able to um, help fundraise for people to, um, you know, feed their pets or meet their needs. We're just ending up with fewer adult animals coming into the shelter as well in this country. And again, I think in our lifetime, we're going to have to start really reckoning with this problem. I think the solution is encouraging more responsible breeding. Um, and 
I think the solution is really starting to think more about these really good companion quality dogs um, because part of the problem with a lot of really high-end breeders right now um, is that they're not necessarily breeding pets. You know, they're breeding puppies like Niffler mm-hmm. who are going on to be working mm-hmm. on sport dogs. They're breeding show dogs, which a lot of show dogs can make good pets, but you're breeding for show. You're not breeding for pets. So, and those puppies also end up being mm-hmm. really expensive in a lot of cases. Um I don't think it's a bad thing Mm -hmm. that puppies are expensive. I think that, God, I I, like, I'm so conflicted about this, but um, (laughs) I don't think it is everyone's God given right to be able to have a dog when they want one, just because they want one at whatever price. Um, Mm-hmm. That said, I hate the idea of economic gatekeeping and saying that, oh, because you can't afford $1,000 right now, you don't deserve to have a pet. And I hold both of those in my head at the same time, and I don't know where I actually fall on it. Um, so I hope that in our lifetime, we can start seeing more responsible breeding, um, potentially more opportunities to breed dogs just because they're nice dogs and not because they're perfect examples of a historic breed. You know, I actually am increasingly thinking Mm -hmm. that like, oh my gosh, yeah, you've got a really, really nice lab and this person's got a really, really nice Cocker Spaniel, like, and they're both amazing pet dogs that are super happy to play with the kids and hang out in the backyard and like, don't mind that you work 40 hours a week, but also really like going to the soccer games and, you know, like, oh my God, like what's wrong with making a litter out of those, those dogs, as long as they're healthy and they're actually as nice as I just described. Um, and like, that is kind of my mm-hmm. hot take is that like, I, I think responsible, the definition of responsible breeding may need to be expanded to talk more about people who are breeding companion dogs, um, and potentially mixed breed dogs. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I, my understanding in the U.S. at least of the shortage of nice dogs, which there kind of is a shortage of nice dogs in this country already. Um, as I've talked about before, I tried for a year to find a really nice shelter dog um, to be my second dog. And I also have some really highly specific needs that made it a lot harder, but I was not able to find what I was looking for in a shelter in this country. And my understanding in the U S is that that does not come from regulations on breeders that comes from really successful spay neuter campaigns and um, assistance to help people keep nice dogs in their home. So the dogs Mm -hmm. that are coming into the Mm -hmm. shelter in this country um, generally do have health or behavior concerns. And I can say that as someone who currently works in a shelter, we do have some nice dogs coming in. um, And I think there always will be some of that, Mm -hmm. but they are few and far between. They fly off the shelves. Um, You know, it's, I think, I think we need more breeding. So that's. (laughs) So we did it. I think we found a, uh, we found a topic where I'm going to disagree with you on something. Really? Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. (laughs) We did it. Our last part, our last question of our last episode together. So I actually don't, I'm not convinced we're going to see that in our lifetime. And the reason is I think that, well, I think there are a couple of reasons. One being as Americans, we are so resistant to regulation and there is such an emphasis on individual freedom and I get to do what I want with my property. And that includes dogs. I, I have a really hard time seeing breeding being regulated in the near future, maybe if ever in this country. Um, I think that we have enough, 
I think that that lobbying is powerful enough that um, you know obviously we have a lot of big well-funded dog fancier organizations that I think would really really push back on that um, I'm not convinced that's gonna be a big problem I will say I've I've certainly seen what you're talking about in terms of a reduction of pet dogs coming into shelters and here in Colorado we have done such a great job at um, you know, spay and neuter that I don't consider at least the front range to have a pet overpopulation problem anymore or dog overpopulation problem at the very least. Um, and now we are starting, we have been importing dogs from Texas, New Mexico, Oklahoma, you know, the surrounding States. And a lot of these dogs are dogs that were never prepared to be pets. You know, they lived rural or even semi-feral lives um, and that's sort of a whole other issue on its own. But I, I think in addition to my um, d dubiousness at, you know, the idea of us ever really impl imp um, putting into place like regulations or legislation that limits how people can breed, you know, we also like plenty of people who purchase dogs from breeders end up turning them into a shelter for a variety of reasons. And I agree behavioral is certainly the top of the, the list, but sometimes that behavioral is like, oh, well, the dog is crazy. You know, it's, we don't have time for its exercise needs or, or it doesn't get along with my child or whatever things that are, you know, make a perfectly rehomable dog. And I think that as long as we have people buying dogs from breeders, we're going to be having dogs being rehomed or needing to be rehomed. And, and I just, I, I don't, know that I think we're going to see a shortage of dogs anytime soon. And also I think out here in the West, like I, I did a lot of sheltering back East in, in Kentucky and then I volunteered pretty heavily with a shelter in Topeka, Kansas. And a lot of areas have a long way to go before they get to where the front range is in terms of um, their populations. And, you know, things are coming up fast and I, I, you know, I agree that there are a lot of, programs in place and the bigger, more well-funded shelters are putting programs in place to help prevent relinquishment. But I think that just the nature of pet ownership and the nature of human beings is such that we're always going to see, you know, dogs at volume being, being rehomed for a variety of different reasons. Um, where I completely agree with you is I do think I would love to see more responsible breeding for companion dogs. Um, as opposed to um, like a, a breed standard. And, and mm -hmm. I think, you know, like if you love, you know, border collies, I love border collies. I know you do. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. But how many people are out there looking for a, a border collie? <laughs> like, <laughs> I think that, you know, just to use an example that like a very real example, I think Barley probably wouldn't thrive in a lot of homes. Yeah. Um you know, he's a, he's a very advanced dog and he has a lot of advanced needs and you're absolutely perfect. Like he hit the jackpot when you adopted him. But I think mm -hmm. if the average pet owner had gone in and been like, Oh, Hey, look at that cute little black and white dog who likes to chase the ball. We're going to take him out with the cute tongue. <laughs> like it, I, uh -huh, Oh yeah. So cute. Oh, and he loves to throw the stick. Oh, he, Oh, he wants me to throw it again. Oh no. Oh, he wants me to throw it again. Oh my God. He's not leaving me alone. <laughs> you know, like I think it usually that, takes them longer than that to realize know, it's not cute. I, <laughs> um, and then there's 3, like 3,000 repetitions in. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> right. But yeah, I agree. I would love to see uh, breeding for companionship, regardless of what the breed is. Like two healthy dogs with great temperaments. Yes, that those would make great companion dogs because companion dogs are what most people want. Most mm -hmm. people are not looking for a working dog. And when they are, there are already plenty of people who are out there who love that specific kind of working dog that are breeding it to the best of their ability. Yeah. There's and this weird... That, um, Sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, there's this like weird kind of, I don't know if paradox is the right word, but it's like the people who are likely to become breeders are also the sort of people who are likely to love dogs that are not. Yes. Like your, your, your stereotypical companion dog. Like I have considered that, like, I think at some yeah. point I'm going to get uh, a little involved in breeding, if not a lot involved in breeding. And like, I'm in that camp, like the sort of dogs that I'm interested in owning and therefore the dogs that I will have available to breed. And if I were to be breeding to produce a dog for myself, which most breeders are, I'm not producing dogs that are going to go into normal pet homes. Um, like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the things about Niffler that I find endearing and charming and when I love him most are the sorts of things that you and I get calls for all the time. <laughs> saying that their puppy right. is broken um, <laughs> because he's nuts. He's absolutely nuts. And yeah. I will actually, I'm going to backtrack a little bit and I think we may disagree less than we thought. I actually, I don't, I don't think that we're going to see regulation of breeders in our lifetime. I think we're going to see the problem mm -hmm. of not having enough dogs available for normal pet homes in our lifetime, because I think we're already starting to see mm -hmm. hints of that. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I agree. I actually yeah. don't think that we're likely to see like regulation of breeders leading to a reduction in availability of dogs. I think the reduction in availability of dogs is coming from other areas in this country. Um, and that may differ in mm -hmm. other countries, but I don't well, think regulation is going to be after it. all. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, and like also Ursa and I live in like very libertarian parts of the country because I do know that there have been some regulations passed in California and Nevada that are anti-puppy mill legislation that I've seen some, some rumblings mm -hmm. from breeders that it it is not targeted enough to shut puppy mills down and so there have been some actual mm -hmm. regulations here in the u.s that are that do make breeders nervous but they're quite localized right now and the goal of those regulations is to crack down on puppy mills it's just it just sounds like the the specific laws haven't been written narrowly enough to make sure that um you know a breeder who has several dogs um and i i don't have the laws in front of me but basically the the laws weren't written narrowly enough for the comfort of at least a couple people on my facebook feed <laughs> <laughs> Who, like, which is the best way to do going to agree with you right <laughs> yeah yes. which is of course the best um, way to do your legislative policy research is just reading the opinions of people on facebook oh. so um obviously everything i'm facebook. saying should you be know what's taken. even better uh go ahead <laughs> yeah oh i was gonna say what's even better is the opinions of people on twitter that's where it really gets juicy <laughs> well, or tiktok i'm um, quickly you know, it's discovering funny, though, you say that oh yeah yeah um, I would be the kind of person that were I to ever get into breeding, I don't know that I would. It's not something that like I at this moment feel super passionate passionately about, but I would be the one breeding for companion dogs because like I have two dogs that I love because they are the most easygoing companion, like just 
chill house dogs. Like they get along great with my kid. Um, they're awesome to hang out with. They sleep when we sleep. They're up when we're up. Like they're perfect. And I'm like, if I could only have dogs like you for the rest of my life, I would be happy. (laughs) So like Nico, for example, you know, he's just like friendly, great temperament, super chill down to hang, but also down to like, you know, whatever, uh, just independent enough. Like I would breed an army of dogs like him. And I think everyone should have one. So <laughs> I would um, love, um, I think an there army are people out that, me too. I would teach them how to mush <laughs> just a little bit though. Cause his legs are just so short. He could only yeah. go like a mile or two, probably. Oh, just a I little just, bit. I'm sure <laughs> we're not talking. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is one of my life goals to just be pulled around town in a stroller by a pack of chihuahuas. Like, that's just all I want in life is just like a a horde of chihuahuas um to terrorize the community with (laughs) (laughs) maybe I'll be a companion chihuahua breeder when I grow up who knows there you go oh my gosh (laughs) Uh, anyway I actually have another meeting in one minute, so we have to, we really have to leave now. Oh, wow. We brought it home. All right. Well, thanks for listening, guys, and thanks for everything. Yeah. This has been the most amazing journey. So I am. it is a bittersweet. Uh, see, see you later. Um, but, yeah, it's just been awesome. Yeah. yeah this was I, a fun, uh, fun we're miss episode you a lot. for me, too. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it really was. And um, I think we will get that patron um, who submitted the uh, – the breeder rescue question, a t-shirt. Um, so we'll, we'll work out oh, the logistics yes, for that. Yes, we did promise that. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, it was good enough. Oh my gosh. You guys will, um, you guys will be able to hear me, um, in two weeks, uh, with some upcoming episodes. Um, in the meantime, make sure you find and support canine conversations wherever you listen to your podcasts. Bye. Thanks Bye. so much.